Welcome, everybody. I'm Richard Krause. I hope you're staying happy, healthy, and safe. It's a jam-packed show, so let's get right at it. Later, we'll meet Academy Award-winning filmmaker Errol Morris. The Pigeon Tunnel, his latest film now streaming on Apple TV+, is a look at the extraordinary life of David Cornwell a.k.a. prolific author John le Carre. Through a retelling of his life, Cornwell examines the very essence of truth and how memory and manipulation play a part in how we shape our world and our perceptions. It's a great movie, and Errol is a really interesting man, so you'll want to stick around for that one. We'll also meet actor and author R.H. Thompson. You know him from his film and television work as Matthew Cuthbert in Anne with an E, in the movie Chloe, directed by Adam McGoyan, and as Marshall McLuhan in a movie called The Message. Today, we'll talk about his new book. In By the Ghost light, he looks at his family history and relatives who fought in World War I and World War II as a starting point to examine war and its aftermath. First, though, let's meet Salah Bashir, author of a new memoir, First to Leave the Party, My Life with Ordinary People Who Happen to be Famous, available now wherever fine books are sold. Salah is a Canadian business executive, entrepreneur, publisher, art collector, fundraiser, and philanthropist who has raised millions of dollars for charity and says the only autograph worth having is one that's on a check. He's a pioneer in consumer video, the founding member and chair of Famous Players Media, and later the president of Cineplex Media and creator of the Scene Program, which I know you've all used. It's a storied career, which he covers in the book in 54 short chapters about people he's met and befriended over the years. Chapters like Elizabeth Taylor Tries on My Pearls, Eartha Kitt is Not for Sale, Wooing Gregory Peck, and much, much more. Salah Bashir, join me via Zoom. The idea for this book was born uh, when you were in the hospital. You were recovering from a kidney transplant, so tell me how that led to what we're talking about today. I got sepsis from the kidney transplant and I had to have a few other surgeries and it was life-threatening. And um, I was around for about five months between the operation and rehab, which was incredible. Rich Point, Toronto General, best in the world. And I started writing little anecdotes of stories I've told before just to lift people up and almost to tell my story as well to my friends and relatives, and then it grew up into this book. And so, the you know, little things that we talked about, like, you know, Ella Fitzgerald wanting to know where to get Kibbe in Toronto, and of course, everybody's going to say my mom, and so <laughs> we'll be delivering, you know, Kibbe to Ella Fitzgerald, the Imperial Room, or Paul Newman when uh, Joanne Woodward was at the Royal Alex, you know, Sweet Bird of Youth, and I'd say to Gino Empry, you know, I've lived down the street if they ever want to come I had an apartment at Simple Street across from Roy Thompson Hall, and, you know, they did come. And so these little friendships are born, and it's away from the camera, away from the role they're supposed to play. And It is truly a memoir. It's about you. Uh, but it's also about these famous people that you've met along the way. But you're telling stories that um, I thought it often were very funny, showed a different side of uh, these very famous people. Elizabeth Taylor coming to your house to try on some of your jewels and that sort of thing. And, and she took a cab from the Four Seasons down to the apartment. You know, you just have to wear those big glasses because those eyes, you're not going to get that everywhere. And yeah, and most people also forget 
or don't give her enough credit how smart she was about her art, her jewelry, mm. the fact that she worked through a lot of surgeries and pain during her career to just keep going on. You humanize these people that you're writing about and yourself rather than kind of lionize them. Why was that important to you? I think most people don't see these people beyond their screen presence, what they mm -hmm. did and what they did with their celebrity and um, that it's a role people are playing. And I didn't want to necessarily worship or, you know, I would say, always said that the only autograph worth getting is on a check. <laughs> and, um, you know, and it's still true. I guess transfers now probably yeah. <laughs> that works. How did the book change while you were writing it? So it started off as a project while you were hospitalized and it started off as stories to entertain people. Tell me a little bit about where the depth came from. Well, I was working with Jamie Bernard, um, an old friend I've known for 40 years. She was a former film critic for both New York Daily News and New York Post. And then she brought it out of me when we, we fought back and forth. I would write something and she'd say, I know you had a deeper relationship with Edward Albee than what I can get at Wikipedia. It was like, I'm not going to write about that. So she pulled it out, out of me as well. And, I, you know, during COVID and career stuff, I was going through a change. And most of these people had been, some of them dismissed for their weight or their presence or they're too old to do anything kind of thing. And so the more she helped me pull, the more I wanted to write my own story instead of something you can get anywhere else. And so... Well, just be able to so be able to tell my story through people I've met. So I thought that was unique as well. You're listening to Salah Bashir on The Richard Krause Show. His book, First to Leave the Party, My Life with Ordinary People Who Happen to Be Famous, is available now wherever fine books are sold. And tell me a little bit about the organization of the book. It's not chronological. It doesn't start off with, I was born in Lebanon and then worked its way forward through to today. You know, you can read any chapter without having to read them in order. You can do, and being in the hospital or waiting at doctor's offices, you often pick something up and then never pick up a New Yorker in the old days where they had 20,000 essays. Like you never, <laughs> so it, it was structured that you can start with Marlon Brando at this, or you can jump to Princess Margaret or whatever interests you. And quite a few people have told me they actually have done that. Um, and so there is no real chronological order. There's no real anything. So we thought it was fun to do it that way. Let's talk a little bit about uh, your love of Andy Warhol. There's a reason why you collect them. Yeah, I mean, I, Keith Herring introduced me to Andy Warhol. And um, that's even funny to say out loud, actually, because, you know, you never know, like, who's going to become what they're going to become or, you know, and that's the whole point of the book. And he knew I called my mother twice a day and he had, you know, um, and I adored Warhol because he broke all the rules, like every single rule, like people would, you know, want to know about his sexuality. He'd say, I'm a virgin while his husband, Jed Johnson's in the kitchen yeah. or I'm asexual or I ate, you know, Campbell's soup for 20 days or 20 years of my life. It's like, no, you didn't. <laughs> uh, but he'd play around, but he also revolutionized art in every way. And not only the Hollywood portraits, but he had a whole like sex series before and the riots and transgender people, um, you know, uh, portraits. Uh, so I adored Andy and, uh, I, and most people, you know, have not given him the due, I mean, incredible due that what he did, but he also left 
a lot of his um, will to his charity, the foundation, which has raised a ton of money for galleries and given like hundreds of Warhols to. So he he revolutionized everything. And I, I loved the way he did everything. So, and Keith Herring, I mean, Keith, uh, there's a little chapter in the book, which uh, there was a special relationship there. <laughs> Keith and I had a little fling together and uh, Keith would have been 65 um, last year. So you always wonder, and I'm 68, you always wonder what would have happened if they did have a full life. A lot of the artists that we lost to AIDS and other stuff as well. I mean, that always haunts you. That always thinks like, I mean, part of that is why I couldn't even read the book myself because sometimes when I read it out loud, it just, uh, I blame it on the anti-rejection drugs from the kidney. <laughs> <laughs> it makes you, they make you emotional, do they? They do. Well, they, well I, I don't know. You're not wearing your trademark pearls today. You're wearing <laughs> a, a diamond necklace, but you, you say that pearls are your uh, badge of courage. You say that in the book. Tell me what that means to you. Um, to be able to walk into a boardroom with a pearl necklace. Um, I think sometimes it's it's visibility. It's like I'm doing these things to anybody coming out or young people who are struggling, and then I'm being myself. There's no guessing. It's uh, authenticity, and then we placed it as like rappers and gay people but if you go back royalty and everybody else everybody wore jewelry and then i don't know how to tie a tie <laughs> to be honest like seriously um one time we were having a meeting with bluma pell with mercedes and for the canadian foundation for aids research so i went to my concierge and said grant can you help me tie this tie <laughs> and he said to me mr b are you going to a funeral i said ah oh, let me go back up and put my pearls on and so, you know, that that for me, um, it's just individual celebrating, you know, mm -hmm. being individual, being a style, who I am. And, uh, because you've been so successful for so very long, do you think that there was a time when being yourself worked against you in some way? Oh, I think it still does. Do you? Oh, yeah, I, I think it still does. I, other people take credit for things I've done, um, you know. There's not majorly open gay people on a lot of boards, um, you know, uh, and I, sometimes like in different corporate settings, you know, what I say seems to be not heard or, you know, we, we have the even diversity and inclusion just includes sticking somebody on there. We're not celebrating a culture or getting to know the culture or, you know, even now with the conflicts going on in the, in the Middle East, my family has you know, we have, I have a Jewish, I've got Arab, got Muslims, I'm bordering between atheist and agnostic. And, but we don't, we, you know, it's like, we lump the whole Arab world as the Arab world. It's not the Arab speaking world. It's like the English world, you know, it wouldn't be. So it's still, you don't understand different. And I think that understanding would lead to a lot of people want peace, want to live. Everybody wants the same thing. They want a better life. They, they want to exist. And I I think that still there's a lot of things that could be added. And we tend to not put loud voices on there. We put nice, quiet people on. <laughs> and you've always had a loud voice. I've not. I had to find it. I had to have enough. You know, once you're kicked in the ass enough times, and you, you have to find your voice. You've been listening to Salah Bashir on The Richard Krause Show. His book, First to Leave the Party, My Life with Ordinary People Who Happen to be Famous, is available wherever fine books are sold.
let's get to know Academy Award-winning filmmaker Errol Morris. His film, The Thin Blue Line, placed fifth on the sight and sound poll of the greatest documentaries ever made, and he has, in his films, documented everything from the career of Robert S. McNamara, the Secretary of Defense during the Vietnam War, and physicist Stephen Hawking, to a topiary gardener, a robot scientist, and a naked mole rat specialist. The Pigeon Tunnel, his latest film, now streaming on Apple TV+, Plus, is a look at the extraordinary life of David Cornwell, a.k.a. prolific author John le Carre. Through a retelling of his life, Cornwell examines the very essence of truth and how memory and manipulation play a part in how we shape our world and our perceptions. Here's Errol Morris. It's terribly difficult to recruit for a secret service. You're looking for somebody who's a bit bad, but at the same time loyal. There's a type, and I fit it perfectly. When I was in MI6, it wasn't enough for me. So what I did was reinvent the secret world and fill my own people with it. Maybe this is an interrogation. Maybe I am self-deceived. I don't know, but I'll answer any question you wish me to answer as truthfully as I can. In his memoir, he says, none of it's true, it's how I imagined it. So going in, were you hoping to sort of get beyond some of the imaginations, some of the uh, stuff that perhaps he misremembered and really get to the truth of his life? No. <laughs> I'm not saying that the pursuit of truth is unimportant. Mm -hmm. Maybe it's all important. But the goal of this movie was not to pin him to the wall like a butterfly. Uh, the goal of the movie is to explore with him how he sees the world. Mm -hmm. The fact that he tells you that his memories are often inaccurate, perhaps fraudulent, is great. Because <laughs> memories often are. But I was more interested in how he sees the world. How, why make a movie where you have one essential protagonist? Uh, often these movies are made, you, you, you put together 10 characters mm -hmm. talking about who is John le Carré. There's none of that. Because I don't care what other people think about John le Carré. I think the story is about what John le Carré thinks about himself. And the movie is constructed accordingly. Um, he tells you that he imagines the house where he was born, but the house where he was born is different from how he imagines it. And if I were to make a didactic movie where I would set up, he says this, but <laughs> it's untrue, it's that, I think that I would be doing the whole story an immense disservice. That's not to say truth isn't important, but it's to say that the focus here is on something different. Sometimes truth is unknowable. I've well, heard you say that in interviews. Sometimes the truth may be unknowable, but we can't even know that. <laughs> we can't know that something is unknowable. We can suspect it's unknowable. Mm -hmm. You can investigate and investigate and investigate. I was involved in a three-year investigation uh, in Texas in the Thin Blue Line yeah. to try to prove a man who had been sentenced to death 
for the murder of a Dallas police officer was just plain innocent. Mm -hmm. He didn't do it. He wasn't there. And to prove that the guy who was the chief prosecution witness against this man was the real killer. So this is a story where truth is essential. It's central and essential. You have to know, mm -hmm. did he shoot the cop or didn't he shoot the cop? Yes or no? True or false? But here, you're in a strange landscape. Uh, and in making a movie, you want to try to figure out where the center of the story might lie. And here, for me, it's a question of what is history? Mm. There he is in Germany in 1960. Uh, the Berlin Wall is about to go up. All hell is breaking loose. And he makes a novel right in the crucible of that ongoing history. It's quite an amazing undertaking. Mm -hmm. um, and my chore is to sort of examine how he reacted to that history around him. The novel is part of that story, but there's a larger story to be told as well. I learned, for example, from the Pigeon Tunnel, I think it's chapter two or chapter three, he talks about, it's the very beginnings of the memoir, talks about how, to his amazement, major figures in the Bundesrepublik were Nazis. <laughs> <laughs> the second guy in the Bundesrepublik was Hans Globke, who devised the Nuremberg Laws, mm -hmm. which were an invitation, if you like, to what became the Holocaust. And David is appalled. It's interesting, the moralist in him keeps appearing and reappearing in his fiction, in his storytelling, in his life. And all of the spy who came in from the coal, which is the novel he wrote on the basis of the Berlin Wall, is an examination of good and evil and personality. And it's an extraordinary work, extraordinary artist. Lucky to be able to talk to him. He has frequently, I think, been dismissed just as they would always write spy novelist, not just novelist. And I think that's a, it, it, it's a it's a key thing. I think spy novelist. I think in the in the way that it was used suggested that perhaps he was lesser than a novelist. That he wasn't quite the artist that I think that we now recognize him to be. I've been told he didn't like being called a spy novelist. Mm. I never called him a spy novelist. So I'm not guilty. <laughs> His son says that uh, David knew that this was his swan song did that affect the way that uh you interviewed him the kinds of questions that you would have asked him no not really no no but we all were aware of the fact that david was no youngster mm -hmm. and that time was running out in some way maybe it's running out for all of us and he uh was terrific I mean, I keep thinking of this one example. I cite the example because it still amazes me. Uh, he says the cat on the, uh, 
uh, cat slept on the dog as mad as a story. Mm. But, um, and I said, well, the Carré version is the cat betrayed the dog by sleeping on his mat. Yeah. And uh, David says, without a moment hesitation, the cat was probably a double. <laughs> He's very, very fast on his feet, very eloquent. Um, an enormous gift with words and language, accents. Mm -hmm. Which we see in the film. Absolutely. And I, I, that... I found uh, completely charming, completely disarming, and was completely unexpected for me. Good. Yeah. Excellent. Yeah, I had no by idea. By the way, it was unexpected by me, too, when <laughs> I asked him to do it. I didn't know he's going to do such a good job. Yeah, yeah. And he does. It's almost as if he, you, you almost see him slip into it. You know, Absolutely. It's like a character that he, he's putting on Evidently the Evidently, when he was working on his novels, he would always vocalize his characters. Wow. Literally. Yeah. And uh, the sound of language was something so very important to him and part of his artistry. That was Errol Morris on The Richard Krause Show. His new film, The Pigeon Tunnel, is now streaming on Apple TV+. And really, check it out. It's an extraordinary movie about the extraordinary life of David Cornwall, a.k.a. prolific author John Lucari, and it digs down just like we just did in that interview on what's true and what isn't and what does it matter fascinating stuff from a great filmmaker. My guest in this segment is actor and author R.H. Thompson. You know him from his film and television work as Matthew Cuthbert in Anne with an E, the movie Chloe, directed by Adam McGoyan, and as Marshall McLuhan in The Message by Jason Sherman and many, many, many other projects. But we're not here today to talk about his distinguished acting career. Maybe we'll do that another time. Today, we'll talk about his new book, in By the Ghost Light, he looks at his family history and relatives who fought in World Wars I and II as a starting point to examine war and its aftermath. It's a subject that's been on his mind for some time. For the first World War centenary, he built The World Remembers, an international commemoration exhibit now installed at the Canadian War Museum, which has set out to assemble the world's first global memorial for everyone killed in the 1914-1918 war. R.H. Thompson explains. The World Remembers is a distinctly Canadian project because... Several people, you know, when I was talking to the French and the Belgians and the whatever, the Italians, more than one diplomat said to me, Robert, you know, the Canadians are the only one who could pro propose this kind of project. I said, why? They said, well, if the Germans pr proposed it, nobody would do it. The British would never propose it. If the Americans proposed it, people would. You're the only country that's kind of A, because you're a middle power. And B, because you're everybody. So the Canada has a legitimacy now to make this kind of gesture to the world. So that for me is why I keep going on The World Remembers. And The World Remembers is a website, theworldremembers.org. One word, theworldremembers.org. People send us stories. People send us help. People say, what can I do? That's really important. There's more on The World Remembers later on in the interview. First, let's get to R.H. Thompson's new book, By the Ghost Light, Wars, Memories, and Families. With all the unrest in the world, is this book more timely than it may have been when you started writing it? Yep. <laughs> yeah. Yep. 
You know, because, you know, it, okay, you, you cut me off, Richard, when you don't want me to yak, but there's, there, we tell so many war stories, right? Mm-hmm. And they fall into three categories. The stories you tell before a war, which are usually the warmonger stories, and which get people ready to fight. The stories t- told during a war, which we are going through now, both with Ukraine and the Middle East, and they're all over the place. Mm-hmm. And they're not only fighting the war, but at home, people are fighting for the story because we don't know what it is. We don't know where it ends. And the third set of stories are those everyone gets ready after the war and they write the stories. The third set of stories are realized you and I have probably lived in our whole lives, you know, mm-hmm. World War One, World War Two, Korea, Afghanistan. And, yep. and then the stories are told afterwards. Those who tell the third set of stories are really important. Because if you tell them a certain way, you create the conditions for the next war. So the stories that come after, those storytellers have a huge responsibility. And I don't think we have really understood that. You know, when I see Marvel Comics, when I see this superhero, that's when I see punching and slugging and shooting. And I know we're entertaining and I know people are making billions of dollars, but... What are we really doing here? Well, isn't it giving people something that's easily digestible? This is good. This is evil. And there's not a lot of nuance in between. Why? Why don't they want any complexity? Well, I would think because it makes them uh, perhaps morally culpable if they if they have to dig a little bit too deeply. It uh, makes them feel uncomfortable because war means doing terrible things to other people, and perhaps you know they feel as if uh, you know it's it's their responsibility, or they could have possibly something to do with that, even if they're not holding a gun and on a battlefield. I mean, I think there's probably lots of different reasons, but I think it boils down to uh wanting a simple narrative yep and i believe that's i need to absolve myself of certain uncomfortable feelings certain uncomfortable responsibilities and certain darknesses and i don't want them in my life therefore i'll go for the cleaned up story you're listening to rh thompson on the richard krauss show his new book by the ghost light wars memory and families is available now wherever fine books are sold well i think that creates more conflict Mm-hmm. When, and when any culture looks at the wars it conducted with eyes wide open, and the Germans have done this, they come up with very different answers. And so I'm, I'm not saying I bow down to the Germans, but the way they have looked, and the Belgians, the way the Belgians, I mean, doing the world remembers, right? Trying to get the names from every World War nation mm-hmm. and showing them nine million names. So I have to talk to all these nations, the Belgians, the, the Americans, the Australians, the French, the British, the Slovenians, the Czechs. Yeah. And you get an idea of the sort of remember the war memory culture of each of them. And the Belgians are very clear. They say, you know what? On Belgian soil, we're going to remember every soldier who ever died on our soldier soil, no matter what army they're in. Mm-hmm. Because they think if you remember by dividing people, us and them, we won, you lost. If you divide people even in remembrance, you help create the forces of division, which lead to conflict, blah, blah, blah. So it's a tricky place because it's hard to say to your, it's hard to say to, you know, to Canadians, yeah, Canadian soldiers, we murdered German prisoners. You can't say that. I mean, look at the Frufra when they said, you know, the bombing raids on Germany, 
which we were part of, most of them, many of them were only on civilian targets. We were killing civilians. For what purpose? And people would get really uncomfortable in that because it's morally ambiguous. And as you say, who wants to be morally ambiguous? It's too comfortable to be right, but it's also dangerous to be right. At, at what point did you stop having these romantic notions of war? It was because it came from the theater. I went and saw a piece of theater by Joan Littlewood called Oh, What a Lovely War. Mm. And it was a musical based on the British in World War I. And it was so irreverent. And it was so, it started holding up the mirror to the absurdities that went on. That's the first time the, kind of the, the facade cracked. And I went, what? Are you kidding? <laughs> and then once the facade cracks, you begin to ask questions. And through those questions, you start to see what's going on. And it's taken decades because, you know, learning is an onion. You know, awareness is like an onion, layer by layer by layer. So it's been a long process. The First and Second World Wars were wars that your family members were directly involved in. What did you learn from them directly, most likely the Second World War veterans? My First World War veterans, I only knew one of them because most of them had either died in the battlefields or died soon afterwards from the gas. So I knew only one, you know, the aged, my great uncle Art, who was a rascal. He was spoke like seven languages. He was a rascal, wow. taught us how to gamble at Christmas. He was always <laughs> up to tricks. He was he was the trickster, as it were. Right. And I kind of got a sense of a reverence from him. But he was also, you know, he lied about his age and he joined the Second World War until they found out he was told and they kicked him out. The real war that I had is was the real war that I experienced was, you know, I was born in 1947. So it was two years after my father returned. So like all returning warriors, stuff comes back with you, mm -hmm. both both the experiences you talk about and the experiences you do not talk about. So that came back with my father, but he was very articulate. And there's a lot of talk around the dinner table. He was on Corvettes on the North Atlantic about the convoys and the this and the problems and but it was, he, I think it was a bit of a, of a iconoclast, like, iconoclast like I am. And he would always look for the counter point of view. Mm. And I realized that he and a number of other Corvette commanders were utterly admiring the Germans. And you go, what? He said, no, these kids, they had a death rate far beyond ours. And they were in awful conditions. And we hunted the bejesus out of them. And still at the end, they were going out and they admired the courage of those young German sailors. They weren't admiring Nazis, right? Mm -hmm. Gotta be careful here. They were admiring the sailors, as it were. And my father had a couple of friendships with German. One guy was in the German Luftwaffe as a glider pilot. And the other was, uh, uh, this guy was in German Secret Service, I don't know. But even so, he fought them for four years and was shot at them for four years and yet kept a friendship afterwards. So that kind of affected me. This book is a call to action. What needs to change? What would you like to see change in terms of the way that we approach history? The question is, I think, Richard, um, November the 11th is totally honorable and mm -hmm. totally necessary. But the script was written in 1920. Would we do a film script from 1920 every year? Would we do a play script? No, we wouldn't. We would adapt it. We would grow it. It would change with changing audiences and changing actors. 
So I say the Canada of 1918, 1919 that created Remembrance Day very honorably is not the Canada of now. The Canada of then was, we are white, we are British. Oh yes, there's, there's little Ukrainians over there and there's the, oh, the Italians over there, but we're British. We are every people now. We are the, you know, we're the Punjabi Canadians, we're the Taiwanese Canadians, we're the Vietnamese Canadians, we're the Slovenian Canadians, the, the American Canadians, we're everybody. So what do you do when you remember a war now? Do you remember it the way you were in 1919, 1920? Or do you remember it from who you are now, which is everybody? So it's part of the reason why we created the world remembers, saying, you know, when we show the names from World War I, we want to show the names from the Punjab. We want to show the names from the US. We want to show the names from Germany. We want to show the names from Czech Republic, from Slovakia, from South Africa. Yeah, and just to make sure that people understand what the world remembers is, this is an international project that you have uh, spearheaded to individually name each of the millions killed in the First World War. And yeah. so you are looking to place a name uh, and, and an identity to everyone. And this yes. is I mean, an unbelievable, <laughs> huge undertaking. Uh, it, you've that's it, been going for years. Does it see? Do you see an endpoint? No. When will I lose my sanity? I don't know. It takes a nutcase to run these kind of things <laughs> to even keep at them. But yeah. you know, after like eight years, I went. Do we do we hit delete on this project? And by that point, I think we had like two and a half million names and sixteen countries. And I thought, no, we have two and a half million names. You know, it's taken a long time to find mm -hmm. them because they're not easy. You don't pull off the web, so to speak. And why not do everyone? Yeah. Why not, why not for the first time in history saying, guess what? We're going to name everyone. I'm going to name, say you said, I'm going to name every soldier who died on the plains of Abraham. The French soldiers, the Scottish soldiers, the British soldiers. That would change our appreciation of that. Well, this war, World War One. It's safe to do that because everyone's dead. Mm -hmm. So no one is being offended by putting a German name beside a French name, beside a Canadian name, American name, Australian name, a British name. And isn't it time that we did that? And Both to respect them, but also to tell the world, because we used to do this in schools as well. And, you know, the, the display would be in the school and the teacher would say, how long is it going to run, Robert? And I said, well, it's probably going to run six weeks. What do you mean? It's going to run six weeks. I said, well, that's part of it. You're listening to R.H. Thompson on The Richard Krause Show. His book, By the Ghost Light, Wars, Memory, and Families, is available now wherever you buy fine books. For six weeks, the names appear, 22 seconds each. If the student walks by four weeks after it began and goes, they're still going, maybe the student will emotionally make the connection, mm -hmm. not a number, because when you say, you know, 68,000 Canadians or 9 million, it's an intellectual thing. Right. You want you want that to get it. So that's part of the point of doing this. And there's 23 nations, and now I need total help. The only reason I keep going, Richard, is because I, individuals call me up and said, can I help from the Romanian community, the cremation community, the Chinese-Canadian community. I need that help to keep building this project. And that's the only way we can do it. But we have a four and a quarter million names now from 23 nations and the Canadian War Museum shows it yeah. in November. And I've even got into a, a, a US museum, their museum. So it's starting to place out there. But I believe it's, 
do you say to the 68,000 Canadians who came home or, were, or didn't come home or were killed? Oh, that's it. Okay. You're in the archives. Goodbye. Mm -hmm. Or I say, no, no, I think we should name you. And I think you're living families. There, there was this moment when we named them and one year was on the National Memorial and another year was on, on the old Senate building. And we timed them. So a family could go to the website and say, okay, Krauss, uh oh, maybe you're German. So say, so say your great grandfather was in your great grandfather's in World War One. You'd be able to go to the website, look up Krauss. Oh, his name appears October the 28th at 2.18 a.m. So at 2.18 a.m., bang, there's your great grandfather's name. Well, families appeared at four o'clock in the morning with their children from Peterborough to stand there because they knew their relative's name was going to appear. And that's that's when I thought, that's how you remember. That's how you acknowledge. Sort of a high-tech version of the Vietnam monument with everyone's name on it. Yeah. Or the 9-11 monument. Yeah. If the Vietnam monument had the million Vietnamese names on it. You say that when I realized how many Canadians from so many cultural backgrounds had been omitted from the remembrances of war. You said that's what inspired you to write this book. Tell me a little bit about that. I put the names up on Toronto Old City Hall mm -hmm. uh, in 2017. I got a money, got a bit of money, got a grant. We put a screen up on Old City Hall. I put the projectors across the street in uh, the bay, lent me one of their wardrobe rooms. So I projected <laughs> across the street on the screen, we built whatever. So we were up there for weeks every night, blah, 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 blah. A woman came up to me in the midst of it and said, thank you for doing that. She said, that's the first time I've ever felt included on November the 11th. Mm. I said, well, excuse me, what do you mean? She said, I've never felt included before. I said, why? She said, well, my family came from Germany in 1947. She said, I was born here. But it, we've always gone quiet on November the 11th. We just don't do anything. So it's not just the German Canadians who are left out. It's the Pakistani Canadians, it's the Punjabi Canadians, you know, it's the Vietnamese Canadians, the Chinese Canadians. So many Canadians are left out on November the 11th. So when I talk about inclusion, saying how do we make a, a war memory day that includes anybody, you, everyone, you have to start to build this, a new, add a new vocabulary. Mm -hmm. No one is criticizing November the 11th and however honorable it is, there's no criticism of it but it has to open to who we are now. That's what I say. That was R.H. Thompson on The Richard Krause Show. Find his book, By the Ghost Light, wherever fine books are sold. Big thanks to all my guests today. Of course, my biggest thanks, as always, goes to you for listening. I'm Richard Krause. Stay happy, stay healthy, stay safe, stay weird, and we'll talk to you again soon. <laughs> <laughs>